0: All right, if you have a Bible, um, we are in Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, Mark 14, verses 12 through 25. Very familiar story about Passover and the very first Lord's Supper, so that's where we're at. Now, some of you don't know this about me, and that's on, I guess it's on purpose, but I'm, I play guitar and sing. used to lead worship around here. They won't let me do it anymore. Um, no, it's okay. It's totally okay. It's all right. I'm stronger than that. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, I still grab a guitar from time to ten, time and pluck away, and, and there's guitars all over my house. Every room, there's at least one. And uh, the other day, I grabbed a guitar, and I started playing an old, old song. Not a, not a church song, not a worship song, just an old, like, cowboy tune. I've been singing it for 40 years, okay? No, we're not singing. And I sing the song, and Ben walks by, my oldest son, he goes, we're going to sing that at your funeral. And uh, apart from being troubled that he's already planning my funeral, um, I understood what he was saying. This this song is a great way to describe you, because that's what you do at funerals. You kind of try to tell a story, get people closer to the essence of of a person in a strange way. maybe maybe not so strange, the passage that we're looking at today um, is the story that Jesus is telling his disciples to remember him by. That's what he's doing. We're going to do this, and I want you to do this until I return in remembrance of me. Now, to be honest, it's kind of shocking, uh, to be fair. It's one thing to to ask someone to remember you. It's quite another to command your friends to remember you um, on a regular basis with you as the sole focus. But uh, that's precisely what Jesus commands his followers to do in, in this Lord's Supper, okay? And that's the focus of our, our time together. And how Jesus does it is by a reinterpretation of the Passover. Very interesting. A meal, by the way, that already has like huge significant symbolism in it. Jesus takes it all, gathers it together, and points it at himself and says, Here's the, here you go, church. This is what I'm here for. And so that's the section of scripture that we're in, in Mark chapter 14. I, I want to do what we always do. Let's read it in, in total, and then I'll just pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to kind of help us really understand um, what he's saying. Verse 12, and on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began with, to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it, is it I? And he said to them, it is, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been f- better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, take this as my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes to, to see Jesus. All these illustrations point to him. Help us see, really, um, the depths of his love for us. Help us see um, the inclinations of our heart without help. I pray, God, that like every Sunday, that when we leave here today, we will have made much of Jesus our Savior, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been around Redemption for very long at all, you know that we talk about Jesus and His gospel all the time. I mean, that is what we do, and uh, I think that's the totality of Scripture. To be honest with you, God engaging with man through Jesus, and there's so many amazing facets to this gospel story. So many things that, you know, as hymn writers would say, if the earth was filled with paper and the oceans filled with ink, we would run out of ink telling the story of God's grace. Now. I would hope that to be true. I would hope that the church would understand so much, so much depth to the gospel that we'd run out of paper. Um, Nevertheless, let me just point out some things that we have said that just continue to amaze us. Here's one, that your sins can be so completely forgiven in Christ that God truly, truly remembers it no more. As far as the East is from the West, so far he's removed all those scars and all those charges from you. You've been totally transformed into a brand new creature. That's amazing, right? I talked to a woman in the first hour over here, and the first word she told me after the sermon was, what about guilt? is not that great about the gospel? Because God doesn't do guilt. (laughs) Satan uses guilt. Satan wants to convince you that all these promises of God only, only last maybe a moment, but the gospel is eternal. Because our God is eternal, and because our God's promise is forever, right? Amazing. I mean, amen, church. Okay. Another thing that's amazing about the gospel to me is the total and absolute freedom, joy, and and uh, peace that He provides and promises in the gospel. And by the way, this freedom, joy, and peace is not connected to circumstances. This is a gospel of peace and joy that can be in the midst of suffering prison, shipwrecks, cancer, trouble, broken homes, divorce. This kind of freedom and, and joy shows up because of God's super nature for his people because the issue of the heart is what God solves. There's another aspect that's amazing to me, and that is that this God, this otherly God, this holy God, this always was and always will be all-powerful, creating, sustainer God has given us Jesus so that we can call him Daddy relationship. Like he would have every reason to go, just keep your distance, would you? But he works so hard to bring us close and call us children, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, belonging to God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. Is that amazing? You just keep saying amen whenever this strikes you, okay? All right. But there's another thing that I think is interesting to me. It's, it's really powerful that this salvation of God isn't isn't a possibility, it's a certainty. There are people out there who portray a gospel, and I suppose it's a, little, it's a little tricky because there's parts of what we say that are even what they say. But they present it in such a way that you're in charge of the gospel. Like, it's up to you now. God is over here. Is this impotent, really nice and kind God, and he's provided a a possibility. Here's the portal, but you've got to figure it out and sort it out and make your way. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says the problem is so great and so big that God has to go and get you and drag you to him. That's the gospel. And that tells you the story of the gospel. The first part that we don't like to look at, our problem is way, way worse than we ever feared. We are so twisted in our thinking because of sin, we wouldn't choose God unless he chose us. That's the reality of the gospel story. It's beautiful that our gospel that we own and that we love, these songs that we sing, are not a possibility. They're a certainty in Jesus, amen? Isn't that what we learned in Mark uh, chapter 10 earlier in our study? In verse 45, the Son of God came. Here's why he came, to give his life a ransom for many. An absolute certainty of why he came. In other words, to describe it this way, the Father ordained our salvation and the Son secured our salvation for those who believe. Make sense? So it is that intentionality and that sovereign plan that is demonstrated, in my opinion, in the way in which Jesus goes about telling the gospel story at the Passover feast with his disciples. Okay? Everything was in his control. The master's plan. Not one detail was going to be left out. Not one particular aspect would be neglected. Jesus was in charge of this moment. No one was taking his life. He was on his way to give his life. Make sense? Okay. He, he had everything prepared. Jesus tells his disciples to go into Jerusalem and prepare a place for them. Um, by the way, in Jerusalem, was the only place you could celebrate the Passover supper, And like I told you last week as well, that there are some writers, some historians that suggest that the numbers at at this moment just swelled out of control. Millions of people. Some say up to three million. I don't know if that's possible, but either way, there's lots and lots of people. And so these disciples, whoever they are, and I think we're going to find out in a little bit from Luke's account, that these disciples go into the city and they're told to look for a guy carrying a jar of water. Okay? Find him follow him. That's all their, that's their instructions, okay? Now, you read that and you go, man, that's a a tall order. This would be like showing up at Times Square on a Friday afternoon after work and looking for a redhead. I don't know. Is that what we're supposed to do? How do we do this? So my guess is it's easier than you think because of the preparation of Christ. There are two different aspects to look at this. Either Jesus had planned it all, organized it all, or in his sovereign decision. Either way, there's some unique things happening in this, in, in this request. I, I believe the text kind of implies that this person, whoever they were looking for carrying the jar of water, was looking for them as well. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that Peter and John were the ones who were sent. Now, you remember if we go back to the very beginning of this study in Mark, John Mark was the writer, but who's the author behind the words? It's Peter, right? And, and many people believe that the person carrying the water jar was, was John Mark who Peter knew. So, it's how hard is it to find necessarily somebody you recognize, and maybe that's part of it. The other thing that think makes it easier than it looks, and that is this, that men didn't carry water. It was a woman's job. So, for for a man walking around with a water jar would be like a, I don't know, a guy in a skirt, I guess. You would notice that, maybe, all right? And they didn't carry waters in jars. They carried it in skins. So, there were several things that would make him stand out. Either they recognized him or, or the peculiarity of what he was doing. E- either way, Jesus knew precisely what was going on, either by some kind of premeditated plan or by some kind of foreknowledge based on who he is. And that's how it went down. The disciples went and found it just as Jesus said. And, uh, and he tells them to find this room. Find the master of the house and prepare for Passover. Now, if you were here last week, you heard us talk about the Passover, and I'm not going to go through an Exodus 12 rendition again. Uh, I'll briefly mention it and go on to some ceremony, just because you need to see the stories and the illustrations in it. Exodus 12 tells the story of Israel in bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh. And they've been crying out for generation after generation for the Lord to deliver them from this slavery. And God heard their voice, called Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. They wouldn't listen, so God begins these series of, of plagues. The last of which was an angel of death to come through Egypt and kill off the firstborn, unless, unless you found a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb. And sacrificed it, and took its perfect blood, and painted the doorpost of your house. And then, if the angel of death was coming by, and you had the righteous, perfect lamb's blood on your doorposts, you will live. Okay. I told you, don't get that analogy. We gotta, we gotta get you counseling or something. That's obvious. All right. But in the celebration of the Passover, there is so many reminders and so many symbolisms that I think are worth just quickly mentioning. There is a, a season before the meal started that was about finding any kind of leaven, the investigation, you take a lamp and you light and look for this yeast or leaven in your house, and it was intended to remind the people of God of the, of the haste in which they left Egypt, right? There was no time to let dough rise. God's coming. He's delivering you. Go. And so they were reminded of that moment. I think the other reality of looking for leaven is leaven affects the whole lump of dough, doesn't it? And isn't that the reality of what sin does to the human heart? You can't manage sin. You can't control sin little bit affects the whole person, right? That's the devastating effects of sin. Adam and Eve chose to believe a lie, and we get this, okay? devastating effects of sin there's also the selection of and the uh, sacrificing of the lamb which is important in its symbolism the worshipers were to find like I said this perfect unblemished lamb and they were to take it to the temple and they would sacrifice it themselves in front of the the priest but the priest would line up between the altar with gold bowls and silver bowls and the blood would drain into these bowls and they would pass it down to the last priest would pour it on the altar obviously the symbolism there is 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 huge but they would take the entrails and they would take some of the fat and they would burn that and they would give the carcass back to the person who was supposed to go home and obviously not boil but to, to roast this, this lamb, the pomegranate branch. The story of this perfect lamb is a, is a perfect reminder to Israel that how God protected them with this blood of the lamb. That's the story that they were remembering when they actually sacrificed and then ate this lamb. There was also the reminder with the bowl of salt water of the tears that they shed while they were in bondage in Egypt. All those years and years and years of crying out to the Lord. That's the reminder to them. The bitter herbs that they ate was a reminder of the bitterness of slavery, the paste that they would make out of this conglomeration of fruit would remind them of the of the, you know, the mud that they would make the, the bricks out of for Pharaoh and his in his commands. There was also this periodic or, or stages of wine, cups of wine that they would drink periodically through the Passover meal. All of them were pointing to the promise and the love of God. When they would drink these cups, they would remind themselves, God made a promise. God loves his people. God made a promise. God loves his people. Over and over again, they would, they would do these things. And Jesus was in control of all of this because he's going to snatch all of those illustrations for a time in a sequence called Egypt and Israel and turn it all towards himself. And he's got he's orchestrating it perfectly to make that point. Precisely what he wanted, when he wanted, how he wanted it to, to, to go, partly because of Judas. Judas, as we've read, is in the background, planning and conniving a way to betray Jesus. So that explains why in the precision of where to go and how to do it, he doesn't tell all the disciples. Possibly Judas would have taken that information and run off to those who would betray him or murder him and give that away. But he only tells Peter and John, and they go and find this locale to keep it secret so that this wonderful moment could be theirs. Jesus planned this wonderful, wonderful moment perfectly because he's making a point that he is. He is the true and better Passover lamb. You might think that this was just a date in time. I'm telling you, this is how man is restored to God. And so Jesus is making that point, and so he's in control of this this moment perfectly. It's the last meal he'd ever eat on this earth before he is risen. Uh, The Passover feast is a graphic illustration of the centrality of Jesus. When he uses those terms, and we'll get back to it, that his body is broken and his blood is shed. Those two things, key to our understanding of how someone is saved, Okay? And there's another reason why this thing is so important to Jesus, and it's because every devout Jew saw the Passover not only as God's faithful deliverance in the past, but they saw it as some promise in the future. Like, There's a Messiah coming. He's going to deliver us. He's going to keep delivering on his promises. So every time they sat down and ate... It was telling all of that. And Jesus now is master of this moment, getting ready to teach really deep truths about who he is and why he came. That ultimately Jesus is the promise that you're looking for, okay? That's what's wrapped up in this, in this moment. Nothing was up to chance. It was all in Jesus' control. There's a second thing I want you to notice. In verse 17, I think it goes to verse 21, and that is this betrayal. A weird phrase, a friend's betrayal. Doesn't even sound right to say it. And there are three aspects, I think, in this story that stuck out to me, sort of mind-blowing. It is not only Judas, and i make a point about that in a second, but the disciples and, and Jesus as well. And I told you last week, I, it's hard for me to get my head around Judas. I mean, after all you saw, I mean, you saw the blind see and you saw the the lame walk, and you saw the dead rise to life. You saw that stuff. You saw him preach sermons that had never been taught before. You saw how the wisest of the wise just tapped out when Jesus responded to their questions. You saw that he spoke as one with authority, as someone who actually is the author of the truth. You, You saw that, and yet here we are, turning your back on it. Now, I'm going to take a second and just describe to you the eating arrangements because you're going to see even more how sick this whole moment really is. According to John's gospel, the way this eating arrangement kind of turns out from left to right was Judas, Jesus, and John. John was called a disciple who loved Jesus, and on his left was Judas, okay? And they did not eat at tables with chairs as we do. They would recline at lower tables. So you just have to picture in your, in your mind for a second, uh, all these men kind of laid out around this table, head to chest, head to chest, leaning on left elbow, eating with the right hand. Very intimate setting. And so to Jesus' chest was John, the disciple who loved him. To Judas' chest was Jesus. So now just picture for a second this scenario. Here is Jesus now leading this wonderful moment And according to John 13, it says that Jesus stopped this teaching moment. and said, I'm I'm troubled. I'm troubled in my spirit. And what he's about to talk about is what he knew Judas was about to do, this intention to betray him. Now, the other Gospels we've seen, um, even last week, kind of exposing the intentions or the motives of, of Judas, that he was motivated by money. He was constantly... Lining his pockets with the money of the apostles, but either way, here he is, agreed to give up the savior for thirty pieces, thirty pieces of silver, thirty coins. So seriously, money had to play a role. But, but I told you also that that many writers believe that there was something else kind of grinding in the background for Judas, and that was this: that Judas was disappointed in Jesus. In Judas' mind, um, there's a possibility that. This, this Jesus, as this compassionate, suffering servant come to give his life a ransom for many, was not the Messiah he signed up to follow. And what he was looking for was this leader, this ruler Messiah, as every Jew in their mind thought of him, would come in and deal with Rome and we would rule. And we'd win. And there's a possibility that Judas in his mind thought, well, I'm not here for compassion and love and suffering I'm not for that kind of Jesus. And so he sees Christ as he's portrayed as an obstacle to the other kind of Jesus. And so he simply says, I'm selling out. I'm getting rid of him. Now, when I was uh, writing these things down um, on Thursday, I felt some conviction in my own soul. So I'm just going to throw them out there and see if there's conviction for us or at least questions to answer. But here's, here's a couple thoughts that I had based on those particulars in this story. Proximity to Jesus secures you nothing. Now, this is the only place I can say this in church because someone once said, I don't know who it was, that church is the best place to hide from God because you can look good, you can perform, be religious, sing some songs, you open your Bible, you can be kind, you can give money. You can do so many things that would convince you and I that, hey, we're all on the same team, we all love Jesus. And the reality of it is proximity does not secure you anything because Judas was closer than you could possibly fathom. He was up to his eyeballs in truth, in miracles, in wonder, the compassion of Christ. And yet being close to Jesus doesn't secure his salvation. We know how it ends. He's possessed by Satan. He goes and kills himself. He's damned forever forever. It's worth at least at least a little bit of assessment in your own heart. It doesn't pay you at all to fake it. If in your life you feel like you're pretending a relationship with Jesus that doesn't match salvation, then I implore you to run to Christ. Because just hanging around him doesn't save anybody. Does that make sense? There's another thing I think that stuck out to me, and that is this, that you can't follow the Jesus of your preference Can't maybe, maybe Judas followed him for a few years thinking that he's going to pop up as the Messiah, the one I dreamed him to be. A lot of people follow Jesus for some other reasons, like that. It's classic for, for our culture to follow Jesus for enhancement. Do you understand what I'm saying? He didn't come. To help maintain your control of your life or enhance the way you live your life. I get enhanced every time I sit down and watch HD football. That enhances me. I love that. Okay? Jesus didn't come to add little pieces to your already established kingdom. That's not why he came. He did not come to answer a few questions you might have that you're confused about. He didn't come so that your marriage will be put back together or your kids would be Christian. He did not come so that you would have a bank account full of money or a business operation that was foolproof. That's not why he came. He came as the God, saver, sustainer of all things to redeem a people that were so blind and broken in their sin without hope, which spent eternity separated from God under the weight of his wrath. That's why Jesus came. Period. Now, could he do other things? Certainly. But enhancing your life is not on his agenda. That's the reality of this thing. He came, real simple, he came for us to worship him, not the other way around. And the only way we're going to get that is we realize that we're the perpetrator of the evil and the sin, and we deserve all the weight and wrath of God, and I just want Jesus. Anything else? Suffering's okay. Poverty's okay. Okay. Giving of my life is okay because I just want him. He's the prize of this story. Let, let me add one more thought to this. When you heard me say that I have a hard time believing in Jesus or Judas and what he did, I, I know that can sound judgmental. And if you're sensitive, you scroll back in your life and go, man, I, just this week I did something stupid. Just this week I did a series of things I knew were wrong. I responded to people in sin. I decided to do something else. Isn't that sort of like betraying Jesus? I know so much and yet I don't live it. Isn't that sort of like it is? And, and I would tell you no. And let me describe the difference. Let me do it by defining sin. Here's what sin is for a believer. It's pretty simple. Sin is simply for a brief time for you and I as a believer to buy into the deception that there's something more satisfying than Jesus. That's all sin is could last a minute, could last an hour, could last a day, could last a week, could last a month, whatever. But for a believer to buy in that there's something other than Jesus that can satisfy, okay? That's what Christians do, okay? What Judas did was calculate the worth of Christ and come to the conclusion he's not worth anything. 30 coins. That's what he's worth to me, okay? It's totally different. You, you want to know what else kind of surprises me about this passage? It is in verse 19. It's the response of the disciples. And they begin to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it, is it me? Is it I? I have to confess that my, I probably would have chosen the path of, um, <laughs> you know, standing my ground and defiance. Um, denial would be a method I would use. But it looks to me here by the sorrowful comment and saying to one another that there is something significant going on here for, for all the disciples. All of them, including Judas, but there couldn't be a more contrasting um, group of people between the 11 and Judas. For the 11, their hearts are soft, according to this text. They are in sorrow, asking don't legitimate to. I, I don't want to turn on you, Jesus. Is it me? Am I the one that's going to quit? Am I going to walk away? Am I going to turn my back on this? Is it, is it me? I think there's a legitimate softness to their heart. There's nothing in their mind could hurt them more than to deny him. Although we know just a few hours later, they're all going to abandon him, right? But at least here, they're being very sincere, saying, Jesus, I don't want it to be me. Is it me? It's interesting right, right there at the same time. that Judas, according to Matthew's account, is trying to cover his tracks and says the same thing. Is it, is it me? <laughs> is it me? Of course it's you. <laughs> he actually thought that he could possibly hide his deceit from Jesus. Like if I just ask the right questions or say the right things, he'll never spot my intentions. Now I think there's a lesson in here for us too. A lesson from the disciples' response. So, so just listen to this. I, I don't believe true disciples of Christ put up fronts pretend to be something they're not because true disciples of Christ know what we're capable of. Isn't that the essence of what it means to repent? Isn't that what it means to come to the end of yourself, to realize you would have hung him there, you would have killed him, you're the one, you're the liar? Now, let me describe it another way. True disciples of Christ walk in a humility, in a teachability we're marked by those things. We, we deal with each other's sins with that in mind. We don't judge other people in, in the sense like we're not hard handed. like how could you? That's not how we treat people. We're gentle in our responses, but because we know inside us we're capable of anything. It's like uh, John Bradford back in the 1500s. He was a English reformer, and he was watching a group of prisoners on their way to execution, and he said this line, and I bet you even know it, even today. Apart from the grace of God, there go Isn't that the reality of a disciple of Christ? Like, if it wasn't for his protection, if it wasn't for his wisdom or his provision or the gospel in my life, I could do anything. I could do anything. Now, I have to confess this. I've only learned this in my last 10 to 15 years of life because I used to think I could do, I could not do anything. And I've learned I'm capable And I think the reality of these disciples being soft in that moment, going, Jesus, is me? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy, is a a way in which the church should respond in our understanding and awareness of our own sinful tendencies. There's another thing I want you to see that blows me away in the story, and that is that that Jesus' love is unbelievable here. At this very moment, Jesus is still reaching out to Judas. what, What you don't see in the sequence of time, at least Mark's account, If you would just put a line at verse 17, you could go all the way to John's account of this gospel, and inserted right there after verse 17 is where Jesus dons a slave apron and kneels down and washes the disciples' feet. (laughs) And do you remember what he said in the midst of washing feet? He said, you're clean, but one of you's not. Do you remember that? Talk about another shot at trying to woo someone and their conscience, if if in the background Judas is planning all this evil and Jesus is demonstrating true love and affection and he says, hey, somebody is still unclean, it's almost as if Jesus is saying to Judas at that moment, man, think about what you're doing. You can be made clean. It was an appeal to his conscience, I believe. There, there's another aspect here um, of Jesus, Jesus' demonstration of love and it's not in our particular Narrative, but is in John's narrative, in chapter 13 of John, Jesus brings up and mentions an obscure passage in Psalm 41 that Mark doesn't record for us here, but that John does. If you're familiar with, with uh, Psalm 41, Psalm 41 is David's kind of lament about being betrayed. It goes back to a story in 2 Samuel, I think, chapter 15. David's son, Absalom, decided that he wanted the throne. And so he was coming after his dad. And what he did was try to con all of David's counsel to turn against David. One of those guys was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's number one counselor that Absalom convinced to go against his father. Well, in that story in chapter 15, once Ahithophel figured out that he had made the wrong call, he went outside of town and hung himself. Right before Judas makes the same mistake, Jesus brings up a passage, who knows, that Judas might have gone, I know that passage. I know what that's about. Possibly telling Judas to think about your actions. Think about what you're doing. Look how it ended for him. You don't want it to end for you that way. I think, and I already mentioned it, I think the seating arrangement is a wonderful way to, again, express the love of Christ here. Judas had this honored seat. If there was any way, any... Possible, convenient, yet private way to repent, the way it was laid out was perfect. If, if Jesus' head was right next to Judas' heart, if Judas at all listened to the conviction, he could have just leaned down to Jesus, man, I'm sorry. Nobody would have heard it. Keep it small. It was kind of the safest place for you to come to your senses. You don't have to be transparent to everybody. Just tell Jesus. And yet he didn't turn. I think even the depiction of dipping bread in the same dish, obviously in that culture, it was uh, more than just eating. It was a gesture of friendship. And it's almost as if Jesus was saying, at the same time Judas and him are dipping in the dish, it was like Jesus saying, listen, I'm still calling you to friendship. I'm calling you back to, to forgiveness. Just, just take it, Judas, just take it. One more shot. But according to the text, it tells us that Judas, Judas didn't respond to Jesus at all. He took the bread without any repentance and John tells us that immediately he went out and Satan possessed him. And he followed through, realized what he's done, and he hung himself. Jesus' response to Judas was, get it done. Whatever you got to do, do it quickly. You've crossed the line. It's, it's over. And immediately after that, Jesus turns his attention to what we would call the Lord's Supper. In verses 22 through 25, That's um, what he says. As they reading, he took the bread, and after blessing, it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave it to them. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You've got to believe um, by this time in the Passover meal, every disciple there knew something was up. This was not a Passover meal. This was not like every other meal that you have seen before. This was much more than an animal sacrifice. This was something much more than the story of Israel's exodus um, out of Egypt. Jesus is beginning to tell them about a new and better exodus that he's was for mankind, the exodus from sin and the slavery to sin. Not slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin. And Jesus does it with two phrases that we're so familiar with first one is this bread represents my body. Let's just use these analogies. It's, a, it's amazing to me that even when the bread was passed normally, it was kind of in silence. But here Jesus is telling the story uh, and turning all of these narratives back to himself at this moment. And he simply says, this bread symbolizes me. This symbolizes me. I know, I know in the past it has meant to you this urgency of Egypt and God's delivery out of Egypt and slavery. I'm telling you now, I am the one to deliver you from a different kind of slavery. That's why he is the bread. This is about him. He takes the cup of wine. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. Again, Jesus is redirecting this, this Old Testament narrative and painting it about himself. And he says, this is the new covenant. The old covenant, it's over. The old covenant of law, the do or die covenant, the performance covenant that no one could ever meet, that no one could ever achieve, that old covenant, is it's over. There's a new covenant. It's a covenant of provision. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covering. It's a righteousness applied to you that you didn't earn and you can't keep. This is the new covenant. And it comes through his blood. That's what he says. Not to come to God based on works or effort, but through faith and and nothing else. There is is a a charge that some could say about us taking communion every week, that if you do it, people are just going to be routine with it. They're going to forget about its importance or its weight. And I hope that's not true, but if it might be partially true, let me remind you again of why we eat together. Because every time we take the cup and every time we take the bread, we are saying yes and amen to everything Jesus has done for us. That's what we do when we eat. Every time we take the bread and the cup, we're saying that apart from his once and for all act, we all deserve hell. That's what we're saying. God's wrath should be on us. It should abide in us if it wasn't for Jesus. We are confessing our dependence on Christ. We're saying that we can't fix this problem. That's what we say every time we eat and every time we drink. We're confessing that Jesus alone saves and there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's what we confess when we eat together. Now, I want to remind you what you're not commanded to do. Sounds weird. You are not commanded to solely look at the elements. You're not commanded to think about them. And you're not commanded really to acknowledge the theological significance of these elements. I think that's all a part of what we do, but you're not commanded to do that. You know what the command is? It is so simple that I think the church forgets it. You know what the command is? Eat. That's the command that Jesus gives his disciples. Eat. Why why would he give such a simple commandment about some unbelievably true things in this Lord's Supper? Why would he say eat? Here's why. Let me just make it really, really clear. Because the physical action of eating symbolizes a spiritual action of believing and trusting. It goes like this When I eat food, I am recognizing that I need it to live. I need it to be sustained. I need it for my strength. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are saying, I need it to live. I need it for my strength. I need it to be nourished. Jesus is my nourishment. That's what you say when you eat. You don't just recognize that they're good thoughts about Christ. You're you're recognizing your identity with those things. They're your hope. They're your life. They're your peace. Real life and strength comes from Jesus. Now, I've asked the men to get ready to serve you. In just a minute, they will come and give you a a cup and and a piece of bread. And I want you to hold them carefully. But we're going to take these elements together. And I've got for you, I've never done this before, rules of communion. Okay? Don't write them down because they're just statements, all right? Okay? But what a precious moment for us to get close again to the absolute perfect covering of Jesus. And he paints this story out of Passover. And he says, this this bread that you think is about this is really about my body. And this cup, which has told you about a promise and a love, it really is, but you don't see it, it's me. I am the promise, and I'm the love, and I'm the satisfaction. Let's pray together in the men's service. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for his life and his death and his resurrection and his righteousness applied to us, apart from which we would all spend eternity separated from you. God, I thank you that it is a profound yet simple story that sinners just recognize their need and Jesus comes running. I pray for us, the church that we would remember as Jesus commanded and we would eat saying out loud that he is our life, he is our joy, and he is our peace.